Espionage, international intrigue, real spies, and movie spies. Today, we are joined by a real spy who will open the files for us on Real Spy versus Movie Spy. Hi, this is Dan Silvestri. And Tom Pizzotto. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com and our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. We're thrilled right now to introduce our special guest, Andrew Bustamante, a retired CIA spy. Welcome to our smartest spy in the room segment, Andrew. Thank you very much, Daniel. So I, I do want to say as a point of clarification, yeah. I am not a retired CIA officer. Okay. For anyone out there who has dedicated 30 years of their career to serving the American public, those are a whole different caliber of people than me. I spent seven years undercover, had a great time, and then I chose a different direction for my life. So thank you to all those who retired, but I'm not going to take credit for that. Uh-huh. All right. Well, thanks for clarifying that because we didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here's a little bit of background on Andrew. He's a former covert CIA intelligence officer, decorated military combat veteran, successful Fortune 10 corporate advisor, and after 20 years leading human and technical intelligence operations for corporate and government clients, Andrew founded EverydaySpy.com, the first ever online platform designed to teach elite spy skills to everyday people. Featured in both U.S. and international media, Andrew's training content has been praised for its innovative, authentic, and life-changing impact. All right, so we'll have Andrew on our show twice, once to talk about today, Real Spies versus Movie Spies, and another to discuss his training and how he helps us everyday people learn elite spy skills that will help us keep us safe in life. My wife can't wait <laughs> to hear that one, Andrew. <laughs> All right, let's start off with a little a bit of your background as a covert CIA agent. I mean, tell us what you can, <laughs> of course, Andrew. Yeah, absolutely. Bit. So I, I actually came into CIA from the military. So I was, in, I was in the process of trying to get out of uniform. So for everybody who knows me and for everybody listening now, I am in my heart, in my deepest, darkest part of my soul. I am really just an aspiring hippie. I'm... <laughs> I suck at it. I am the worst hippie in the world, but I'm trying to get better every day. And when I left the Air Force, I wanted to join the Peace Corps. And all I wanted to do was go to Africa, save starving children, teach people how to use a computer, and marry a woman who doesn't shave her armpits. That's all I wanted to do. And it was somewhere along that journey that the CIA found me and said, hey, we have something better for you. Wow. So I, you know, you don't, you don't say no to that invitation. No, holy geez. That's amazing. That's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's a background for you. <laughs> yeah, and the CIA is quite a switch in the Peace Corps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. What people don't know is that, and and I'm here, I'm here in large part because I love busting myths about spies, right? Great. And one of the things that people don't realize is that a spy can't use just any cover. We can't just go under any cover. There are American rules, and every foreign country has their own set of rules about covers that they refuse to use. And Peace Corps is one of those protected covers that American intelligence services will not use because it puts too much danger on actual Peace Corps members. Yeah, sure. So if somehow they're ever captured and, and accused of being a spy, we can actually show legislation that proves that they are being held on false pretense. Wow. Um, and that's an important thing. But at the same time, so they try to get us before we join the Peace Corps. Yeah. <laughs> if we have utility in that uh, spying, lying capacity. <laughs> and they got you. <laughs> they got my wife the same way. She was trying to get there, stop shaving her armpits, but oh, it wow. didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> ah. All right. So in your covert work, 
right? When you were doing the covert operations, we see in the movies and, you know, Dan and I are movie guys. And so when we see in these movies, there's always these convoluted, you know, stunt kind of things that have to happen and all these really harrowing experiences these movie spies have to deal with. Without divulging any secrets, do you have any harrowing experiences? <laughs> yeah, so we do have the harrowing experiences. Harrowing scenarios are a very real thing in everyday life for a spy. But I do want to call out a point of, of, of contention between real life and movie life. Sure. In the movies, it's super sexy to watch a handsome spy on a high-speed boat flying through the canals in Venice, shooting bad guys off of both sides and things exploding, right? If that were to happen in real life, your cover is blown. You're no longer a secrets agent. You are a known threat on a boat and everybody on the shore shooting at you too, right? So when things go wrong... Yes, you're, t- you're taught to shoot, you're taught to fight, you're taught to do all the cool stuff that you see in the movies when everything goes wrong. But by virtue of being a professional intelligence uh, officer, a professional covert operator, you're a master at never being seen. Wow. You're supposed to be the gray man. You're supposed to be you know, the, uh, the invisible insider. You're supposed to be the person who can come and go and nobody even knows you were there. So that's the value of a real professional spy, being able to penetrate, operate, and disappear without ever even being discovered. Wow. Wow. That's kind of that's kind of cool. I mean, that's if you remember the old Mission Impossible show, the first the TV show, that's that was their goal, right? They they were more like that rather than the action adventure kind of stuff that you see today in the in the spy movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. And it's really important because there's no way that if you just think of it logically through the lens of, of uh, business value or, or corporate value, long-term value to the American public, if a spy were to go on op and like James Bond and everybody knows your name, oh, Mr. Bond, <laughs> and everybody knows what you drink and everybody knows what you look like, then you're not going to get very far. No one's going to give you a bunch of secrets. You're going to get wrapped up at the first border crossing you come across, uh, right? And it's, it's a very dangerous life when people know who you are. Yeah. Wow. It's actually, it's actually funny. That, so I have a, a real quick story for you about one of those harrowing moments for me, right? Yeah. So I, I, was, I was in Africa. I was crossing between a, a, a border between two countries, and the border was uncontrolled. Now, it's very hard in the United States and most of the Western world for people to envision an uncontrolled national border. But in parts of Africa, you know, it's run by tribalism. It's run by warlords. It's wow. basically run by whoever has the largest army of child soldiers at any given time. So it can be very, very difficult, whether you're undercover or not, to cross from one country into another country. And on one of my ops, I had to cross across one of these borders. And I was in a car with another covert operator who was, uh, who was not on the same mission as me, but we were tackling the same kind of target set. And we were crossing the border and we came across a warlord controlled checkpoint. So like four kids under the age of 12, two adults, and then two like elderly African, uh, African soldiers, all like weaponed to the gill with AK-47s and grenades hanging wow. from vests. And every single one of them high, high on oh. opioid or whatever the heck else oh. they were doing. Wow. And here we roll through a white guy and a brown guy and a black driver who is, you know, a local driver in a busted car that's barely making it over the potholes. Wow. And that, that 
nobody knew what we were there for. No one knew that we were spies. No one knew anything, but we were scared out of our minds because we had no control. My little nine millimeter that I was hiding and the, and the collapsible baton that my partner was hiding wasn't going to go very far against (laughs) a bunch of people, you know, high on drugs with loaded AK 47. So we just had to rely on, on our brain as the ultimate weapon to get us through that situation. And that's real spy life. Wow. Wow. That's a great story. You got to think on your, you got to think on your feet or just know when to shut up and just, you know, give a couple of high fives and fist bumps and agree with whatever the warlords say about the other warlord. (laughs) So real spies get scared. (laughs) Oh my gosh, dude. If, if you ever meet a former covert operator and they say that they don't get scared, they are lying because we, we, learn to embrace our fear. One of the things that CIA trains us to do is learn how to kind of embrace and digest your fear in real time, control the, the physiological effects that fear has on your body, your heart rate, your body temperature, um, shaky, quivering eyebrows or lips. It's, they teach you to be afraid and to be operational even when you're afraid. That's how you survive. If you freeze, you're dead. Wow, that's great. All right, so this brings us to the next section obviously you've given us a real world experience of a spy and it's fascinating i, I can't imagine going through that. <laughs> yeah i would not be a good spy <laughs> <laughs> you've seen james bond you've seen mission impossible you've seen jason Bourne movies and so on and the gadgets that they use and how they operate in the field and so on so can you highlight some of the similarities that these movies share with real spy activities if there are any <laughs> and, and let's talk about the gadgets that we kind of see in the movies and what you actually might really use in real yeah. life spying so this one gets this gets sticky dan because <laughs> uh okay. because some of the coolest stuff we use is so classified wow I don't, I don't know if I'm even allowed to say that we have super cool stuff that's classified. That may be classified. I don't know. But, but let me stick to the stuff that's super cool and, and that I know I'm not going to go to jail immediately for talking about. So a lot of the stuff that you see them use in a tactical setting. So uh, repelling ropes, piston-driven anchors, glass cutters, night vision goggles, suction cup handholds, all of that stuff is real. Okay. All of that stuff is stuff that really exists we learn how to rock climb. We learn how to repel. We learn how to fast rope in and out of helicopters, off of buildings. Uh, you know, we learn how to spelunk. All that stuff is very, very real. And we use really high quality products to do it. Another thing that's funny is you, if you were to actually see like a tier one operating force before they deploy, you would think they look like a bunch of like busted, uh, <laughs> busted climbing gym rats because all the <laughs> stuff we take with us is our favorite stuff. We don't roll out with new equipment fresh off the shelf that's freshly painted and, and super blacked out because we don't trust that stuff. I'm not going to put myself in harm's way with untested, brand new off the shelf equipment. I'm going to be carrying the thing that's faded and chipped and busted that I've dropped 110 times in training because that thing has actually kept me safe and kept me alive on a, on a rock wall or on a simulated building wall, whatever it might be. So we don't ever use the new stuff. We always use our favorite stuff, which is against policy and usually pisses off senior leadership people. Because <laughs> they pay but, for that stuff. Yeah. Yes. Because then they have, they have racks and racks of beautiful spotless guns that nobody uses because we all want to use the same thing we use on the range. <laughs> want to use the stuff that you know works. Yeah. Right. All right. So you talk about the repelling. 
in the movies, they always use those piton guns yeah, to shoot the, the thing up. I mean, you guys don't so do the, anything. Yeah, the problem with a gun like that is what do you do with it after? It's a one-time use weapon, and it's a yeah. bunch of dead weight when you carry it, right? So it's, it's more likely that you would have kind of a, an advanced team that goes in and sets everything up before you arrive. Okay. So then you use the equipment, they set up, they clean up. Two people carry 100 pounds of weight differently than one person carries 100 pounds of weight, right? Yeah. So that's a big part of it. Uh, and that's all, that's all stuff that's easy to talk about that's still fun and sexy. When yeah. it comes to the super small, high-tech gadgets, man, if I could have a watch that had a laser in it, I wouldn't say no. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say no, but I don't think that we have reached that level of engineering yet. Okay. Um, and, and a lot of the stuff that you see spies have, if they're ever caught with it, if you're caught with a pen that has a cyanide pill in it, there's only one thing that you are. You are yeah. no longer like the CEO of a tire company. You are now a spy, yeah. Yeah. right? Like, so a lot of that super, that super fancy stuff that you see in the movies, listening devices that are secretly pins. And like, if you get caught with that stuff, it's game over. Wow. Nobody, they don't put half a million dollars of training into you so that you can be busted on a lapel mic. That's not going to happen. <laughs> so a lot of times they try to stick with gadgets that are lightly altered and are domestically procured. So if you're going to go into... If you're going to go into France, then they want to find something that is a French make, of French design, that is a French product, and then slightly modify it so that it doesn't look like a spy's device. It looks like just a tech-savvy person's device, right? So okay. that's more of how it looks when you're really operating undercover or when you're doing something extremely tactical. There's no missiles on cars that I've come across yet. Most <laughs> of the cars that I've ever driven have been busted, busted up old used Hiluxes that can't make it over more than five or seven potholes before they pop a leak and I got to call a mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you're not uh, driving not, around any Aston Martins or anything? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, when you went to the Spyscape Museum, you saw a bunch of different kind of gadget things they say were real type of things. Were there any of those that you might remember that you might want to ask about? I mean, if they still, I mean, I remember there was something about like a, a coin that would separate and you could put something in the coin. Yeah, I mean, there was yeah. a lot of stuff that they, this was older spy stuff, of course. For, Cold War for stuff, For dead right? drops and stuff like yep. that, uh, hidden coins or buttons that opened and had a micro dot or that kind of stuff. Uh, all that stuff obviously was real. And is it still used, that kind of stuff? Are there so, dead drops uh, anymore? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're still, I mean, all of your classic Cold War espionage techniques are all still alive and well. Because okay. those, we call it, we call it sticks and bricks on the inside. Nobody can digitally track sticks and bricks. You can't do it. There's no, the problem with the modern day world is that you get digital dust on everything. And digital dust leaves digital fingerprints. Yeah. And the biggest danger of digital fingerprints is you can recreate an entire operation in hindsight. Wow. Where was this person two days ago? Where were they the day before that? What was their identity before they had when they had this phone number? What phone, no what phone was turned on when that phone was turned off? Wow. It's amazing what you can recreate digitally these days. Yeah. So, so it's really important, actually, that a lot of really professional espionage still happens with sticks and bricks, things that can't be traced no matter how much party control or how many cameras on street corners or, you know, how many satellites you have in the sky, we've still got to be able to beat it all with good old fashioned spy craft. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So right, when good. you were talking to Jack Barsky, you did a podcast where you were talking with Jack and you mentioned that you like the dead drop and you right. mentioned Robert, Robert Hansen. Now there's right. a movie 
based on Robert Hansen getting caught, and he got caught because of a dead drop. Correct. Was that a fairly accurate portrayal, do you think? Yes. So I, I actually really appreciate, in the movie Breach, I really appreciate how they demonstrate dead drops. And if you haven't seen it, this, the TV series The Americans is another yes. excellent, excellent show yes. in terms of showing you what real tradecraft looks like, real sticks and bricks tradecraft. Right. Hanson, I'm pretty sure if I recall that movie and it's very, very true to life, he was giving dead drops of, of hard file, like paper printed documents right. dropped in like black industrial trash bags under a bridge in Rock Creek Park. I want to say it was in Washington, D.C. I, I think that's the right. name. And they were dropping money the same way. And it just does such a great job of showing how people are just oblivious to a dead drop. So let's compare what Daniel was saying when he was talking about the coin, a hidden coin or a hidden button, yeah. uh, something like that that you stick a micro dot in or a chip in or even a thumb drive or something like that that's small and it's disguised to look like something else. We call those concealment devices, CDs, concealment devices, a device that's created to conceal its contents. Uh, something like that is super clever because now any one of the DVDs behind you uh, Thomas, on your wall, any yeah. one of those DVDs can actually contain $3,000 in a microchip and no one's going to know about it except for the person I tell you want to find this DVD with this name on the shelf, whatever, right? All of that becomes a concealment device. Okay. In contrast, what Hansen was doing with the Russians was dropping stuff in garbage bags in a public park. That's just a bad idea. I don't know who his Russian handler was. That was a dumb shit idea. Because <laughs> anybody who's walking through Rock Creek Park, if they're a police officer, a janitorial staff, or just a, a normal do-gooder, if they see a bag of trash in their beautiful park, someone's very likely to go pick it up yeah. and move it, right? And they're going to find $20,000, or they're going to find a bunch of printed CIA or FBI documents. It's a bad, it's a bad idea. But so there's still bad tradecraft, even when it sticks and bricks. Yeah. Okay. And when you were in that interview with Jack, you mentioned that you wouldn't reuse dead drop sites and Hanson did. Correct. It's a, it's it a major. Caught. Exactly. It's a major no-no in the professional intelligence world to reuse the same location because it's just Makes like, sense. it's just like anything else that you do. You know, you don't want to pee where you eat kind of thing. Right. So you have, it's always better to have a series of all new, all original locations, because let's say just like with Hanson, the FBI got onto him. Well, when the FBI got onto him, they didn't have to follow him. They just had to watch the dead drop site where they knew he was going to show up. Yeah. And then two days after he showed up, they had to continue sitting there and wait for his handler to show up or vice versa. It's a major, it's a major gap. Now, in what we find out later on in, in deeper study of Hanson is that he was kind of a, kind of a, he was a, what's the word I'm looking for? Curmudgeony kind of uh, stickler of a bossy kind of jerk sort of guy. Well, that came so out in the movie. So I guarantee you his handler was saying, we really shouldn't be doing this. We really shouldn't be doing this. This is not safe for you. But Hanson was probably trying to maintain some sort of authority in the relationship. So he was like, you're going to do it my way. And this is how it's going to work. And his handler, of course, is Russian. Who's like, whatever, dude. Like if, <laughs> if we both get caught, you're going to jail for the rest of your life and you know they're going to come bail me out. So if you want to sit and keep meeting at the same bridge, it's on you. And that's essentially that's what real life spying looks like. You run just just because they're spies doesn't mean they're good people to talk to or they're very smart with their own safety. It mm -hmm. just means they have access to secrets and they're willing to trade secrets for something else. Wow. Wow. 
All right, so we talked about some gadgets. I think uh, you've highlighted that there's some things you cannot talk about. (laughs) (laughs) And the gadgets in the movies are mostly fictional. I mean, mostly fiction, yeah. (laughs) I would love to have some of those fictional things, but they're mostly fiction. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So that's cool. And is there anything, are there any gadgets that you can actually talk about that you've relied on in the real world spying? that they've never used in a movie. Now, ham radio. Ham radio, 100%, my ham friend. Ham radios, no kidding. And, and, and for everybody out there with their ham radio license, or everybody out there who knows what it's like to have a wife who nags you about ham radio, go yeah. grab your wife yeah. or your girlfriend, bring her downstairs, have her listen to this. Ham radio saves lives. Absolutely, ham radio saves lives. It When you know what you're doing, you can bounce a radio signal off of the moon the, the atmosphere it can yeah. reach across the world loud and clear on a transmission that's completely untraceable yeah. on a channel that only you know to look for because nobody else knows to look for that channel it's it's an amazing piece of spy tech yeah that anybody and everybody has access to that's interesting because I, I used to have a, a citizens band radio license in the old days when those were popular and you're right you could skip they used to call it skip you're skipping from Chicago to sometimes Europe, we, we yeah. would skip a signal, or we get yep. we get messages back from people in other countries, and, and 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 you can buy a really nice mobile high end ham radio and be accused of being all sorts of things before they accuse you of being a spy. Wow! Right. right? Yeah. So now all of a sudden you can be in the deepest darkest part of Africa, or you can be in the pack the mountains of Pakistan sending a transmission, and wow. the only person who receives it is the one person back in the United States or who's, you know, in the Swiss Alps, who's waiting for that signal at that time on that channel, they get your message and nobody has any record it ever, it ever happened. Now would that Ham message radio be coded? is a beautiful thing. Would that no, message it's be coded? Op- open text, open yeah. text, because the only time it could be picked up is during transmission. Yeah, it, yeah. it can't even be sucked up. It can't even be sucked up with a vacuum, right? It's not like a SIGINT platform yeah. where they yeah, just yeah. suck up all the data and translate it later. You have to know what to look for. It's a genius piece of uh, piece of equipment. <laughs> I've never seen James Bond use a ham radio. <laughs> There's a re- it's not sexy. Anybody who's ever used a ham radio knows you don't look sexy using a ham radio. How the hell does this? Where's the button? What the? Why? Yeah. I can't tune the channel just right. This is a pain in my ass. <laughs> yeah. I, I love far. that. That old school of technology still is huge. Uh, that's and, it, pretty it, wild. It, and it makes a lot of sense with the way you're describing it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah absolutely. That's enlightening, that's pretty, really. I mean, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. On 26, will be sitting behind a ham radio like, hey, can you hear me? 10 4. All right. Over and out. Yeah. I'll be 10 10 on the channel. 10 or whatever. <laughs> hey, no, that was, uh, I, I like that answer. That was really good. Yeah. That was All great. right. So let's you don't like that answer, Tom. This is, I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is what I love about what I do, right? I, I just tell the truth. Yeah. I love how fascinating the truth is. And yeah. that's yeah. what gets me about, that's what I loved about espionage. All yeah. It's just a giant quest for truth. Yeah. And people think that lies are interesting. Lies are nowhere near as interesting as the real thing. Yeah. And yeah. when you find this stuff out, when you're actually on a secret base and you're like, what's the cool top secret thing they're going to teach me this week? And they break out a ham radio and you're like, <laughs> I, I, you've never felt your heart drop through your chest before <laughs> than when you deploy on a two week private, you know, quiet and, you know, super secret base. And you're like, they're going to give me an Aston Martin and they're going to teach me how to shoot with one eye. 
And <laughs> instead they give you like, here's your ham radio and here's your cleared ham radio instructor. And we're going to practice skipping signals with another team that's waiting for you in Afghanistan. And you're like this, I'm going to do this for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> this is not what I signed up for. This sucks. Yeah. I can't tell my girlfriend about this. Come on. I like your focus on the truth though. And there's an old yes. adage saying that truth requires no memorizing. <laughs> yeah. That's well, the good part of, of truth. Your, in one of your other podcasts, you talked about for cover stories, you only want to be five degrees off of the truth. Exactly because, right. Yeah. Because it's easy for you to be able to just talk about it without having to think. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. My podcast, Everyday Espionage, the Everyday Espionage podcast, or my YouTube channel, Everyday Spy. Every, uh, I think it was my YouTube channel where I specifically taught that lesson, mm -hmm. Tom. Yes, and you're right. It's, it's a strategy for lying. If you can just stay 10, five to 10 degrees off the truth, it's just like if you're navigating with a compass, mm -hmm. you know, where you are now to where you're going, if you're five degrees off, it's not that far off until you get to your destination. And then at your destination, you're like that, that five degrees turns into 15 miles. Yeah. It's right. the same way with a lie. If I can come up with a lie, that's only five degrees different. My name's not Andy. It's Adam. Yeah. I'm not Latino in background. I'm not ambiguously Brown because I'm Latin. I'm ambiguously Brown because I'm Palestinian, yeah. right? It's just a small difference, but it justifies what everybody else is already thinking. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy for you to walk it back if you ever make a mistake. And most professionals don't make a mistake because they stay five degrees off the truth. So oh. it's very easy to recall lies that are so close to the truth. Yeah. Okay. So great. you've used the word really truth there and you talked about when you, it, the, that it was a YouTube video. It was a YouTube video you were making right before you were going to film to yes. tell the truth. That's exactly right. Yep. So I was on the TV show. Yep. And it was a great, episode was a great six show. Of, I'm sorry, season six, episode seven. Of that. <laughs> if you're looking for it online, you can get you can watch that on Hulu. Yeah. Um, that was such a good time. Ends. I won't say how that it was ends. such a good time. <laughs> yeah, I, bet. I, I would imagine. Yeah. So that was that's uh, that was good. All right, All right. So let's let's shift gears then. And you've you've mentioned cars a few times and that, you know, it's speeders <laughs> generally what you're driving. Local <laughs> cars. Yeah. yeah. Local cars. So do they do any modifications to those cars or is this that whole thing about if they catch you with a lapel mic, you're busted? I mean, so yeah. tricking up of the Aston Martin and that kind of stuff. Is there any of that kind of stuff that you've seen? Yeah. So the, the depressing truth here, so I'm going to break hearts, but the depressing, <laughs> the depressing truth here is that all of your high end luxury vehicles, when you live undercover, they want you to be ignored. Like you want to be ignored. So you're never going to have a cover identity that makes you high profile. It's, it's the exact opposite of what they want. Now that doesn't mean that you're always going to be poor in your cover identity. There's plenty of cover identities that are very wealthy cover identities, okay. but you're going to be wealthy and you're going to drive a nice, well-equipped Toyota. You're not going to drive an Aston Martin, right? Okay, you're going to drive right. the kind of Toyota a wealthy guy drives, but not a, a luxury race car that gets, you know, valet parked everywhere because yeah. you carry things in your car. Your car might be outfitted with a secret compartment to hold secret things like cash or jewels or something else that you might need for a mission, a weapon in a country that doesn't let you have weapons. So you might get a little bit of modification like that but it's not going to be very much. And what you oftentimes will find yourself doing is you actually go to a local automotive shop or a local um, mechanic 
and ask for aftermarket modifications there. So you can still soup up the engine, soup up the, uh, the struts and the shocks and put on better tires and give yourself run flats. You can do all of that and the government pays for all of that. It's not like it's coming out of your pocket, yeah. but you do it on the local economy. So there's a history that shows consistency with you being someone who lives on the local economy. So you would, of course, naturally go to the guy down the street who in a lot of places has got four teeth and is a magic (laughs) magic with a wrench. And you ask him to like put in your aftermarket, uh, you know, whatever it might be. And he does it and it works 50 percent of the time. But it's still (laughs) it's there. (laughs) Well, now you you talk a little bit about that in the podcast you did, how how not to hide in plain sight. We're talking about that female uh, yep, the soccer player, player from Portugal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that she was doing the opposite of what you would do if you were really trying to hide in plain sight. Correct. Yeah. It's, the airport is one of the most fascinating case studies for me in people who are doing it wrong. Like people who are trying to kind of trying to hide. They're trying not to look like they draw attention, but they draw attention because of their own inconsistencies. So um, Hannah was one of those people that I saw at the airport. She's a, a pro soccer player for Portugal and she's got a long history of pro soccer and she was dressed down. She was dressed like a normal person. Clearly she did not want anyone to know that she played professional soccer. However, she was rolling around with a very nice suitcase that had a customized name tag on it that anybody who were to look at her, you would think at first, look at this beatnik hippie with a super expensive high-end bag and a custom name. Who is that person? That's what happens <laughs> logically, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And and everybody who sees her is going to do exactly what I did, only maybe like less obnoxiously. I sat down next to her, pulled out <laughs> my laptop, and then started doing an open source search for who she was <laughs> just to see if she would have the situational awareness to realize the creepy guy sitting one seat away from her, wow. Googling her. And that's why I wrote a, that's why I made a podcast episode about it because it wow. just, it was to me such a demonstration of the lack of situational awareness in our in our uh, western society as it as it is now mm-hmm. yeah I, but, I really like that podcast that yeah. was good yeah. it was like, i'm glad man it really makes you think it's so, real world the same stuff thing happened great. to me yeah the same thing just happened to me this past weekend i was traveling to north carolina and i was on a plane and getting on the plane with me was a woman with a gigantic fake diamond wedding set on and i, I saw the wedding set and the first thing i thought was who would wear a ring like that on a Southwest flight? <laughs> and then I just took a look at the rest of her and it didn't take me long before I saw enough evidence that suggested she's not actually married to a super rich guy. She's a stewardess who's taking a casual flight, either somewhere home or maybe she's going somewhere for fun, but she just forgot to take off her fake ring that she uses to make sure people don't hit on her during the flight. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that's good stuff. That's, that's good. See, that's that covert, the just yeah. watching. That's that's cool. Yeah. yeah. Observing so, is yeah. is probably one of the best weapons. A it's a powerful have, weapon, right? yeah. <laughs> that's it cool. really is. Good and speaking stuff. of weapons. Yeah, speaking of weapons. Right, you, you, met, you mentioned that you want to use the guns and stuff that you you're comfortable with not the new fancy one they want to give you and (laughs) in dr no james bond gets his beretta taken away and he's issued a walter ppk and there's a line in the movie that says the american cia swears by the walter (laughs) so well you're a cia guy you're the only one i know to ask That makes for good television. That makes for good television. If if there is any, so first of all, it is kind of funny that 
that the best weapons in the world are actually not not issued to us at CIA. What I wouldn't give for a Smith and Wesson, honestly. Really? Okay. But but that's not what we're given. We're given a lot of foreign made weapons because most of the time that we have to use a weapon, when all hell breaks loose and you're at the end of of everything and you're fighting for survival, the weapon that you need to know how to use is actually the weapon that you can procure domestically wherever you happen to be at the time. So what good is it for me to have five shots in my Smith and Wesson? Because after those five shots are over, if I don't know how to use an AK, I'm screwed. If I'm in Afghanistan or Pakistan, right? If I don't know how to use uh, a French weapon or a Russian weapon or a German weapon when I'm in Southeast Asia or when I'm in Africa, then I'm going to sit there dumbfounded trying to figure out which one's the safety and which one releases the clip. Yeah. So for that reason, we have to, we have to learn how to use weapons that we don't necessarily like or want, but that are going to be readily available in a crunch. And, and again, you don't want to be the person carrying a weapon that's in most of the world doesn't let you have a weapon anyways. So yeah. handguns specifically are something we stay away from. We, we use other weapon alternatives besides projectile weapons. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. That's interesting so, so, with the foreign yeah. part. And, the, and like you're saying, if you're, look, is part of that the ammunition availability too? I mean, if you needed more ammunition and you've got a Smith & Wesson and you're in Pakistan... Good luck. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, yeah. Good luck finding like 365. Exactly. The uh, the 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 better thing. Yes, we we do think about rounds. Yeah. How many rounds do you have? How many rounds do you have access to? How old are those rounds? If you're on a multi-year op, right? Is it consistent with your cover identity? But we we tend to rely much more on personal defensive tactics. So uh, collapsible batons are something that we really like to use. Uh, not a lot of countries in the world have laws against collapsible batons. And, you know, it doesn't take many strikes before you're having a bad day as a bad guy. If you come in, <laughs> if you come in contact with the business end of a baton, right? But even things like pepper spray, personal alarms, tasers, or, or smaller versions of tasers that just have a good sting to them. Yeah. I mean, when the biggest threat that you have overseas is not actually a foreign intelligence service. A foreign intelligence service is going to spy on you. They're going to try to build a case, arrest you, like try you for espionage. They're going to try to find out all the spies that are working with you. They're going to try to disassemble your network. You don't have to worry about KGB knocking on your door anymore, right? It's that's not how it works. Instead, they want to build a case against you. The person you have to worry about is organized crime. It's uh, being a target of opportunity. It's uh, people who are hyped up on drugs or people who have been hired through some sort of some sort of intermediary cutout to come do harm to you. Uh, and those are individuals that aren't as well trained as your foreign intelligence counterparts. And those are the kind of people that it's not hard to neutralize and dominate in a hand to hand exchange. And who would be hiring those people? Government? That gets sticky. <laughs> yeah, that gets sticky because now, you know, there's always people who want to do harm to American intelligence operators. And there's always people who are willing to take payment in exchange for assassination or assault or whatever else. So you can see it doesn't make headline news when a criminal assaults a spy in a foreign country. But it does make headline news when a foreign intelligence officer assaults an intelligence officer in a foreign country. Makes sense. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Now, in terms of weapons and so on, we've seen lots of tricked up stuff in the Bond movies like they have 
in a couple of the Bond movies. Bond's weapon has either a palm print reader or a fingerprint reader. Something that would identify that he's the one shooting the gun and no one else could operate that gun. Would that be even a useful weapon in the field? Because, I mean, it relies There's on... There's so many things wrong with it, yeah. <laughs> what, what, tell us. I mean, what? Yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't want a weapon like that for a lot of reasons. So first of all, in in an actual firefight, things aren't clean. Yeah, uh, your hands aren't clean. The weapon isn't clean. There you go. The sensors aren't clean. So yeah. I mean, just imagine if anybody's tried to unlock their cell phone with their fingerprint. Yeah, yeah When yeah. <laughs> when they were eating like pizza and it doesn't work, how yeah. how much worse would it be if you needed to shoot a gun and you <laughs> okay. couldn't get the gun to unlock because you had grease on your thumb, right? <laughs> We got to tell Q Branch. That's that's a yeah. bad idea. <laughs> yeah, Those are so real, that's, that's that's real. That's real information. That's yeah. In the field, that would be horrible, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this, and even when it comes to some of the safety stuff that you've seen, like uh, I've seen movies where they have pressure regulated handles, so you have to yes. squeeze the handle before you are able to squeeze the trigger. Mm -hmm. That sounds great, you know, when it comes to gun safety inside the United States. But when you're overseas, the last thing you want to worry about, again, in, in a moment of dire need, yeah. you don't want to worry about whether or not you're squeezing with 12 pounds of pressure before you pull the trigger. You want to be able to grab what you need, pull the trigger, and have it fire in the direction you're pointing it. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's a bad, a bad idea to create extra steps. They're called, we call them gross motor functions and fine motor functions. When, when your adrenaline is up and your dopamine is pouring and your adrenaline is high, you don't have fine motor functions anymore. You have only got gross motor functions, which okay. are basic, simple movements. So things that are basic and simple are what we lean on. Yeah, right. Okay, now you talk about having to, you know, a firefighter, these, having to have these, these kind of movements. If you think about a movie like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, you don't really get a lot of that in that movie. Right, and I've also heard that movie's very close to realistic from a spy perspective. Is Correct. that Tinker Tailor Soldier Spies? I'm I'm pretty sure that's based on a Lacar novel. It is, yes. and and Lacar has some of the most accurate spy stuff out there. Okay. Right, it's yeah. The all of the action, like I said in the beginning, if we train for action, but we train for it in the hopes that it never ever happens. Okay. So the what we live for, the way life really looks, is much more like a Lacar novel. It looks much more like you're going to be drowsing yourself to sleep by page 170, right? <laughs> than anything else. And that's exactly where we want it to be. Because then if everybody's drowsy and nobody knows you're there and nobody knows what you're doing and nobody suspects you, then you are in total control of your environment. Yeah. And that is a spy's ultimate goal. Absolute total control of their environment. So we see these spies in the movies. They're pulling out guns all the time. So if, if a spy's got to pull out a gun in real life, what's the situation there? Oh, my gosh, man. If a spy is pulling a gun in real life, then, first of all, they were going into something really dangerous, mm -hmm. so dangerous that they chose to carry a gun on them. Okay. 90% of the time, we don't carry a weapon because we don't expect anything to go awry. awry. You don't expect it because you're in control right? You have to be surprised or you have to think that there might be a scenario where you lose control before you would even carry a weapon. Okay. And then we're, we're also trained to neutralize weapon threats without ever exposing the fact that we have a weapon. So there's a concept in real espionage called information superiority. And information superiority means you have more information than your opponent. As soon as I pull a gun, my opponent knows I have a gun. 
As long as I don't have a gun that's showing and I don't pull it out, even the opponent pointing a weapon at me doesn't know whether or not I have a gun. So I'm in the, I'm in the dominant position informationally. So it, it really has to get to the place where you've tried to remove the gun. It hasn't worked. They have started firing at you and they are missing you. Mm. You have taken cover, physical cover somewhere. And then you have, just, you have determined that you cannot get off the X unless you return fire. And that, that is the kind of situation where a, a professional intelligence operative would actually pull a weapon. Yeah. So that's to be avoided. A little different than what we see in these movies. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I mean, it would be a boring movie, in other yeah. words, to watch yeah. because you're trying not to do that. <laughs> exactly. And, and when a professional operator pulls a weapon, we're basically trained to neutralize in three shots. So if it takes more than three shots, you're doing something wrong. You're not leaning on your training. And every shot that you take is drawing more attention to the, to the general vicinity of where you are at. Oh, that's true. So you want to take as few shots as possible, reconceal your weapon, and get off the X before casual passersby or police or anything else show up. Right. So if it's really going to get to the place where you're returning fire, end it fast and get away because now you're, now you're a murderer undercover in a foreign country, it's a bad combination. What, what could possibly go wrong? What about suppressors? <laughs> suppressors or silencers? Always in the in the in the spy movies. You guys, use I don't that know. Something? I don't know. I don't know where he's carrying it yeah. unless it's someplace really uncomfortable, because <laughs> because it's not easy to carry a, an eight inch handgun yeah. and wear a, a well cut tuxedo. Yeah. So I don't know where he's carrying an extra four inch silencer on top of that. Personally, okay. Right. So generally not used. <laughs> <laughs> no, correct. Because uh, and when you start looking at silencers are a fascinating piece of technology. There's only a few countries in the world that make them. Yeah. And since most countries don't even let you have a handgun, they're most definitely not going to let you have a silencer on top of that. Yeah, yeah. Right. A silencer is built to silence around specifically in an urban setting. That's not going to happen in, in the kind of world that we live in. So if you're caught with a silencer and no handgun, you're still breaking the law in most of the world. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So if you look at all the movies and you've seen a lot of these spy movies, because they have to be kind of amusing to you (laughs) to watch these things. You got to be shaking. We think they're serious. You think they're a comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell us about real covert agents that agents that we see in the movies never do? Can you things that you that happen in the in the real world? Oh, espionage that we never see in the movies or vice versa. You see this stuff and it's like, no, that would never, that's, nah, that doesn't fly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't watch a lot of spy fiction movies specifically for the same reason that doctors don't watch Grey's Anatomy and attorneys <laughs> don't watch the devil's advocate. Right. It's, it's, it's just too painful. Yeah. Um, and, and like I was saying, you know, I've said it before too, the real thing is so much more interesting and the people who are out there doing the real thing, I want to honor them more than I want to honor some Hollywood, yeah. you know, heartthrob. Sure. But that's that's just me. I still love a good a good Bond movie because my wife gets a kick out of them. My wife yeah. is also ex CIA. She yeah. was just she was covert, just like me. And we were a tandem couple. She was actually my ops manager, so she would direct all of the ops, and I would execute the ops that she directed. So it was a marriage made in heaven, yeah, right? Wow. But uh, but she still likes to watch those movies because they help her turn her brain off. So there is value to a good spy movie because it can help a spy basically just go dumb for a few hours and clear their brain 
and not have to worry about all the world's problems. So thank you very much for that, Hollywood. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Okay, I'm sorry, I just wanted to answer one more question. So the the thing that's missing, Daniel, the thing that's missing in every spy movie is the ridiculous amount of paperwork. The Ah. mind-numbing paperwork that has to be done. Because remember, a spy is stealing secrets. Well, how do you communicate those secrets? The only way to communicate those secrets is by writing them down. So you have to write them down and you have to write them in a, in a classified, like in a covert way, right. you have to transmit those covert things. And then it's more than just the secrets. It's more than just what secrets you collected. It's how you collected them, when you collected them, who you collected them from, yeah. how you got to that person, how you left that person, anything interesting that happened along the way, like every, every spy mission literally comes with 15 or 30 pages worth of paperwork that you have to fill out wow. because if something were to happen to you, if you and I are spies, Dan, yeah. and you get hit by a bus, somebody has to take up your operational load. Right, the only true. way I'm going to know what your operations are is if I can look at the last six months of your paperwork. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. so it's right. corporate. It's more like office space yeah. than anything else. Yeah. Well, have you seen any of the Harry Pal- the Harry Palmer movies? Yeah, I was going to just say the yeah. Chris file or Funeral in Berlin. <laughs> Colonel Ross. They actually, he he's they're they're intelligence agents and. A lot of the thing is you've got to make sure you've got your paperwork and it's this there form number. Where's the this form number? Yeah. Like you say, where's the the yeah. in office space? Where's the TPS form or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And is yeah. is it is that an interesting set of movies or is that a, a more boring set of movies? Actually, they're pretty good Harry Palmer movies. <laughs> you know, they're, but, they're older. They're older school spy movies, so it's not all 60s, the huge uh, action stuff. Yeah, so. but it's fun stuff. But it's but it's <laughs> as you're talking about the paperwork. That's what this Colonel Ross, his boss. Is you got to fill out form L nine dash seven. Like, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's interesting because then that that makes me think that was actually well done there. Yeah, yeah. Right. Those, yeah. You mentioned that you're you're married and your wife is ex CIA. Now in the movie Mission Impossible three, Ethan Hunt gets married, and then bad things happen, and so they end up getting unmarried for her safety. And I would think that would be fairly realistic that there, you know, are a lot of CIA agents, active agents married. So it's, I mean, this is, this is a sad part of the world that most people don't know about. It's a very lonely existence when you're a covert operator. It's a very high stress, high trauma um, world. And the system, they recruit you because you show indicators of being able to cope with higher than average trauma and higher than average stress. But for the in the best interest of a national security, in the best interest of the American people, they want you to remain single and married to the organization. Uh, okay. So when the time comes that you choose to find a partner or have a child or grow your family, you are now working against the best interest of national security. So that's exactly what my wife and I found too. She was a high-performing officer on her own. I was a high-performing officer on my own. In when you look at it through the the lens of a romance movie, it makes perfect sense that these two people would get together. Sure, you know, you know, and even uh, even Speed, right? Wasn't it Speed mm-hmm. with Keanu Reeves at the yes. end, where they talked about like marriages happen at the end of like a, a high stress event or something? Yeah. So in it all makes sense, but what ends up happening is it's not it's frowned upon, and because it's frowned upon, and because so few people are able to maintain the secrecy of the job and the intimacy of a relationship, what ends up happening is divorce is rampant. Cheating is rampant. 
And the kind of emotional trauma that comes with divorce and cheating leads to substance abuse, oh, wow. alcohol, drugs, prostitutes, you know, whatever else. And you become very heavily compromised. So the thing that nobody talks about is, is the, the terrible sacrifice that many career operators make yeah. by sacrificing relationships with their children, multiple divorces, uh, estranged parents, estranged children, wow. yeah. uh, recovery from drug and alcohol and whatever terrible drugs you can get your hands on overseas, right? You're not getting, you're not going to get high quality drugs when you're operating in India. So it's just, it, it gets really ugly. It gets really sticky. And we do have a joke that's not really funny that the CIA will, will rush to help you file your divorce paperwork, but they're going to drag their feet on your marriage license. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, so there's and some then, truth to that then, in some of the movies. Yeah. Correct. And then kids, Quantum of Solace, I think, did a really good yeah, job of showing that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then kids kind of mess that up even more for you. Because like you, in that interview you did with Jack Barsky, you, one of the things you had said there was that one of the reasons why you guys left the CIA was because you wanted to do have a family. And one of the reasons that Jack left the KGB was because he was going to start daughter. a family. Exactly and right. So I would imagine kids would make this almost impossible. Yeah, kids make it a very difficult existence. They make it a very complicated, covert existence because now you have you have a child, and what do child do? Children tell the truth. So you all of a sudden, like all of your secrets about this secret operator and their secret life become only as secret as what your six-year-old says at their daycare center or whatever they might be in, right? So it, it's a challenge. And because of that challenge, there's all sorts of reasons that people don't have children or they do have children, but they never let themselves get close to their children because they realize the vulnerability of their child. And another sad reality is we're, we're recruited because we have egos that make us want to be covert operators first before we're dads, before we're moms, before we're husbands or wives, yeah. we want to be America's first line of defense. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's a, it's a weird and twisted psychology that's used to recruit and retain top tier talent. Now, I just have one, one kind of an aside question for you. Go for you it. did that interview with Jack Barsky. How cool or was it <laughs> weird for you, a former CIA agent or operative interviewing a former KGB operative? <laughs> you know, at first I thought it would be contentious in yeah. some way, shape or form. That's what when I, I would first, think. Yeah, when I first kind of when I first came across Jack and we had a mutual contact introduce us, I was like, oh, I don't know how this is going to go. But, you know, it's what ended up happening is when Jack and I had just 10 or 15 minutes to talk personally before we turned on any cameras or anything. Yeah. We were brothers. We're brothers wow. from the same world, from the same womb, with the same background. We've had the same experience. KGB, SVR now they still use and abuse their ass. Their, their, their agents and their officers, just like CIA and FBI do the same thing here, just like RAW does in India, just like BD, uh, BND does in Germany, just like you know the DGSE does in France. Wow. We are all public servants and we are all disposable resources in pursuit of national security. So it's not hard to find a lot that we could bond on. Sure. Before we even started talking about tradecraft or spy skills or or the unfair, awesome advantage that being a spy in real life gives you. Uh, so it was actually, it turned out to be uh, a really awesome experience. Jack and I are still close friends. And, uh, and I really wow. do have, we have plans to do a lot more cool stuff together in the future. Yeah. Because, you know, you're a spy is a spy. And we're kind of 
international citizens more than we are national security treasures. <laughs> you, have, you have shared but different <laughs> experiences. That, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Okay, we're going to shift gears here as we kind of roll out of this. Is And Bravo did a, a TV games show called uh, Spy Games Spy for the 2020 games. season. Did you watch it? And would, and then it kind of le- leads into what you're doing with your training. Would an ordinary person, what would they take from watching a show like that? Yeah, so so actually I was doing my training events before Spy Games came around. And okay. I, I, watched, uh, I watched a couple of episodes of Spy Games and then I couldn't mm-hmm. watch it anymore because they had such an awesome opportunity and they screwed it up. So the good news is because they, they screwed the pooch so bad, and I'll explain why they screwed the pooch. They've, they dropped the ball so hard on that home run that I am now constantly just hitting up everybody I know in show business on the entertainment side with how to do it better and how to get better ratings and better turnout and everything else. Nobody's bitten yet because Spy Games was such a disaster that nobody who is in the entertainment industry wants to come anywhere close to trying to touch it again. So the thing that's so fascinating about spying isn't what you do. It's not the spy themselves. It's the fact that spies, they're just normal people. They're everyday people until a spy agency picks them up and gives them all the training, right? What people don't realize is like, it's, it's easy to make a spy. It's not easy to make someone who speaks Mandarin Chinese. It takes years to teach someone to speak Chinese. It takes about six months to turn someone into a spy. So it's much more efficient to find someone who speaks Chinese and then make them a spy. Find someone who's a nuclear engineer and then make them a spy. Find a dentist and then make them into a spy. Find the skill that you need in an everyday person. Give them a couple of psychology, uh, psychology tests, uh, psychological exams. And if they're, if they have a high tolerance for trauma and, you know, a, a strong ego, then you can put them through a program that, you know, has 90% probability of creating them into a covert operator. It's a, it's a brilliant, a brilliant system, but they all start as everyday people first. Yeah. Bravo had a chance to show everyday people do amazing things well beyond what anybody could ever imagine and celebrate that. But instead they put them through like a dog and pony show yep. and they picked a bunch of beautiful girls with big cleavage to like crawl through small tunnels. Hey, There's nothing sells. impressive about that, but sex yeah. sells. Yeah. But what ends up happening is, you know, you watch that once or twice and you see the same set of breasts and you see the same big smile and you see the same, you know, panel of judges. And then you're like, this isn't interesting anymore because you, nobody can relate to that. But you come to the reason my business is growing so fast is because people come out and they they step out of their everyday life. They step into my little world and they walk away learning surveillance or they walk away learning how to do dead drops or they walk away after doing aggressive tactical driving and tactical shooting. And that transforms you forever. And Bravo missed the mark. And that's a shame. Yeah. And that's what, for, and you and you teach that as part of your everyday spy training. Correct. Yeah, I, I've I teach it to everybody from you know, normal guys off the street, normal gals off the street who yeah, just yeah. are curious all the way to corporate executives and ultra high net worth security teams. And, uh, you know, I've even taught it to, to, to foreign governments who are trying to find ways to secure their own people, but can't get secure, can't get help from, you know, uh, American government partners for one reason or another. And do you do all of the, is Andrew, all the training is in person or do you do some online training as well? Or it actually, you... most of it is actually digital because okay. before anybody yeah. comes to do something with me in person, I need to shape their mind digitally, right? Yeah. I need to shape their, their con, their mindset, 
their way of viewing the world. You don't want to just give anybody the keys to a high performance vehicle and a and a high round <laughs> okay. handgun. You want to let them. You want to train their mind a little bit before you bring yeah, them out, that's and that's good. how you deliver the maximum the maximum impact of training. Yeah. All right. I was wondering about that. That's good. So <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna do a whole show on on your training and what you do because that to me is fascinating, yes. and that's the one my wife really wants to hear. <laughs> she wants to know. How, I don't know what she's gonna do. Use it against me or what? But but I, <laughs> I don't know. But that's the kind of stuff I think that. There's got to be thousands and thousands of people out there who are going to be interested in hearing that message. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's funny because I, I love spy movies because spy movies show you a glimpse of what you're capable of. But the thing that we all love about James Bond isn't that he's a superhuman. Yeah. It's that he's a flawed individual. That's yeah. what makes us feel like I can connect to James Bond. I can connect to Jason Bourne. I can connect to yeah. Sidney Bristow. Is that it from Alias? Like yeah, I think that's they're right. beautiful and they're strong and they're fit and they're perfect. Except I also know that they're really lonely yeah, and yeah. I'm lonely too. Yeah. Or they, you know, they, they don't have a tolerance. They have low patience for people who ask them the same question more than once, just like me. <laughs> like yeah. it's that connection that makes spies so powerful. Yeah, that's good. All right. That's terrific. Hey, yeah. Andrew, this has been great. It's been great fun. Look forward to getting you on our next podcast when you're going to talk about all this training you do because I think that would be fascinating for everyone. So if people want to reach you now, Andrew, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? Yeah, the best way is if you if you like this podcast, if you like the Spy Movie Navigator, just join my podcast, the Everyday Espionage Podcast. It comes right into your phone. If you follow, uh, if you like YouTube, you'll find me at Everyday Spy on YouTube. I have a channel that also shares uh, all of my spy insights, all of my lessons and my teachings there through YouTube. And if you're a social media fan on any channel, you'll find at Everyday Spy. And then for those of you who really want to test yourself, I actually have a spy game that's totally free that puts you in the shoes of a real spy operation yourself. And you can get there by going to everydayspy.com forward slash operations, operations with an S, everydayspy.com forward slash operations. And you can test yourself with your own spy mission. Hey, that's going to be fun. Sounds like fun. Yeah, I have to go do that later. (laughs) <laughs> hey I'll thanks Andrew miserably. this has been so much fun it's been enlightening and a blast really my this pleasure is... guys so that's a wrap alright look for our next podcast with Andrew Bustamante coming up soon that will cover how we can develop spy skills in our own lives this has been Dan Silvestri and Tom Pizzotto of spymovienavigator.com and our show Cracking the Code of Spy Movies subscribe to both our podcast show through your favorite app and to our YouTube channel for some cool videos. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it.